Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to episode 50 of Strangers in a Cinema. You're here with myself, Paul Anderson, my co-host Pete Wall and producer Jack Mills. How are we all? Uh, I got a kitten, so don't really care about anything else. Let's get through this as quickly as we can, because I've got to go home and take care of my kitten and tickle it. It looks incredibly cute. I can't wait to see it. Guys, I mean, I, I've told what you... What are we doing here, guys? We're, we're talking about my kitten, flat. yeah. I mean, I was up until half two in the morning and then had the most glorious experience, which was the first scent of kitten shit, because the kitten had learned how to use its toilet properly, which was, shitten, one, was one of the proudest <laughs> moments of my life, quite honestly. Uh, but yeah, that's preoccupied me for the last 24 hours but apart from that how have you guys been all good yeah yeah pretty good played uh, rounders at school today that was pretty fun got a rounder so i'm pretty excited about this that. is in your capacity as some sort of um child care professional yes it is. teacher it right is. Not yeah, actually it is. at school we yeah i wasn't at clear. school jack's finished school yeah. at this stage yeah and paul decent last week yeah, since right, last yeah. time we recorded it's been all right no spider attacks in the middle of the night for anyone no, near nothing, and dear uh, to you. Nothing anywhere near as dramatic as that, thankfully. So, uh, yeah, this week's been uh, uh, noticeably calm. Nice. So, yes. Well, um, as people who listen to this show will know, we have a format for the show which takes you on a trip through the cinema and it starts off with our In the Foyer section where we'll talk about something from the world of films. Then we'll get into popcorn movies where Paul and I will be throwing backwards and forwards reviews of films that we've seen in the last seven days after that we're going to have the homework brought back um resurrected in a week that we lost george a romero quite fittingly resurrected from the dead because um jack is going to be giving us a review of strangers on a train that we set him as homework last week from there we will go to feature reviews we've got two this week uh, paul what have we got we've got war for the planet of the apes uh, and the beguiled uh, the sophia coppola uh, new version of that so right. looking forward to getting into that and finally we'll round off with setting some new homework and giving you all the usual bits and pieces and details to round off the episode first of all though let's get straight into the foyer paul what have we got to talk about i think i've sort of trailed it a little bit this time around you have tried it a little bit, I think. Um, firstly, is the rather tragic news um, that the film world has lost one of, I would say, personally my favourite and probably one of the most talented horror directors of all time uh, in George A. Romero. Uh, he sadly passed away yesterday, I think, as we're recording as we're recording on a Monday. That's right, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of just. A, I mean, I'm going to feature one of his films as, as one of my popcorn reviews, um, but just you know, as a as a note to say, it is a, is a sad loss. He's one of the most influential. Uh, horror filmmakers of all time um, not just in the, the obvious kind of Living Dead trilogy so like the Living Dead Dawn of the Dead Day of the Dead and some and, and the later ones but stuff like Martin or Knight Riders or just he's just an awesome director and the, the influence he's had on cinema I don't think will ever be forgotten Pete what are your what are your thoughts really? Yeah I mean George A. Romero we should say he lived to 77 so he had a fairly good innings but you're right I mean it is a really sad loss because I think he's one of those directors that even in the later part of his career there was a sort of um, a commitment and a passion to what he did that kept his work from being subpar even when he wasn't maybe at the height of his powers but I think I always go back to um, Dawn of the Dead probably because that might have been the first one that I saw as a as a teenager and it just it's one of those films it's like a touchstone film isn't it it's, it's like a kind of coming of age experience when you see your first George A. Romero film yeah. and you're suddenly like films like this exist like this is a part of a genre of I film. remember seeing I think I'd seen 
Dawn of the Dead before I'd seen Night of the Living Dead when I was growing mm. up and I was, it just blew me away absolutely blew me away and then Night of the Living Dead the end of Night of the Living Dead is just unforgettable right. so good and, and it's one of those films uh, Dawn of the Dead and, and many of his films and he's just one of those filmmakers where when you see some of the material you just want to go and tell people right you want to like go to your mates and be like do, do you know about this these Romero well, the films. Film, the film I caught up with last night, which I won't, I won't spoil yet, was was one of a Romero film I hadn't previously seen, um, and I heard a bit about. And again, it was such, a, and it's not not really actually a horror film, which is quite interesting. Well, I, I will say what it is: it's Night Riders, which we'll talk about again in a bit. And again, it's just he's just so such. I'd say at the time, like original films with with such a neat premise that you know even I would say even the the less effective kind of later. Um, um, what was it called? Survival of the Dead, which you know still had its moments. It still had the zombie riding round on the horse, like which is a bit silly but still memorable. So yeah, he was. Um, well, there was, was the the handheld camera diary, of diary the Dead, which I quite liked, actually, which was not bad. And I mean, yeah. came in a in the midst of a sort of glut of films inspired by George A. Romero, and then yeah. he sort of came back onto the scene that he had created. So yeah, really, really. Um, significant figure I mean that's understating it really isn't yes. it to say that he's significant to horror and, and to zombie movies and that whole canon um, Jack any particular memory of George A. Romero or, or seeing those films or um, you know what you like dislike about any of that stuff well I've never really been a massive fan of zombies so mm. I think that whole sort of horror genre I was never really into as a child but I do remember seeing Dawn of the Dead with my dad um, but Really, I sort of probably hid behind a pillow for most of it. Um, <laughs> so I probably should, as an adult now, I, I think you should if you, I watch them. I can understand why people are now bored of the zombie genre, and I, I would probably count myself as one of those people. Yeah. But if you need, to, when you look back and see the man, genuinely the man that started it all, um, and Night of the Living Dead, especially like the Dawn of the Dead, is kind of like is great. Don't get me wrong, but there's something about the power of Night of Night of the Living Dead, especially with the ending. That was just as an adult, you wouldn't really appreciate. The end, especially, you wouldn't really appreciate as a kid. You don't really get what he's done, and sure, okay. what he did so well was turn just what could have been sort of basic sort of splatter shocker films, yeah. exploitation <laughs> films, into genuine sort of satire on on American consumer culture in Dawn of the Dead and race relation issues in Night of the Living Dead, and those are kind of things that I certainly didn't appreciate when I first watched the films the first time around. That as an adult, you will yeah will appreciate. So. It's such a good point, though. I mean, it's one. He's one of those directors where at age I don't know 13, 14, 15 like him and maybe Cronenberg and maybe a couple of others where you start to realise oh this film is is these horrific things happening on screen but it's also about something and you start being interested yeah. in, like what's the film about what's it connected to what time period was it made in and that I think that opens you up as a, a younger viewer to like appreciating films in a in a sort of bigger way yeah. and it certainly did for me so yeah massively massively uh, important figure and, and yeah sad loss so lots of lots of homework for you there Jack yes so. absolutely yeah, yeah. I look forward to it um, yeah and that, so that, that brings us on then again yeah may he rest in peace um, the other thing I wanted to bring up very briefly and it seems a little bit perhaps trite next to that news but I still wanted to bring it up anyway um, I have heard about and then finally I've got around to watching some of Neil Bloomkamp's um, Oates Studio Productions um, now these, uh, for all intents and purposes, appear to be a series of sci-fi shorts um, with a fairly decent budget, which is quite nice. Um, one of which, uh, Racker, stars Sigourney Weaver, mm. um, so that adds it some weight. Um, they seem to be kind of like trial runs for potentially feature films, if I'm getting the right the right gist of this. So it's kind of a neat idea. Okay. Similar, I think, to what we were saying just before we went on air, Pete, like Amazon Prime do with their screeners I don't know whether this is the case I don't know whether you get to vote for them or not I haven't looked into it that much detail I just had a look at some of them today mm. um, so very very interesting it's quite nice to see some 
shorts with a decent budget to be honest although a couple of them did feel very much like trailers but it's you know they're entertaining 20 25 minutes long they're all up on youtube or steam i think so certainly certainly worth a look yeah david cronenberg did that decent quality short i think a few years ago that we shared around with strangers like hive or something like that oh yeah what i'm talking about yeah Yeah. which is really interesting so yeah it's an interesting thing to follow and this is for anyone who doesn't know neil blomkamp is district nine chappy director right and and other things besides that um yeah so it'll be interesting to see like where that goes and also like if other filmmakers take that model and run with it well i watched a couple of the couple i've seen I, i was expecting it to be a mix of directors and maybe it will be i've only seen two and there's certainly more than that available and but the first two I watched were both directed by Neil Blomkamp um, yeah. so I would I would, I would assume I think the, the gist of it is to open it up to other filmmakers um, I need to do a bit more reading but it was just literally something that caught my attention this afternoon so I thought I'd uh, throw it in there for people to uh, get involved with Cool. Well, that brings us to the end of the section uh, we'll be back in just a moment with our popcorn movie reviews And back, indeed, we are with our popcorn movies of this week. Um, do you want me to start, guys? You happy me, happy yeah, me happy. starting this up? Um, so, yeah, we, I touched on it briefly earlier when we were talking about um, George Romero sadly passing this week. Um, and I, in sort of in in memoriam uh, to him, decided to watch Night Riders last night for the first time. Um, now, this is, uh, I think, an earlier effort. The, the date of its release escapes me. Um, I can find out though. Um, and basically, what this is, it's a very, very cool concept, guys. I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to throw this yeah, out there. It's a I very, thought very it was cool awesome concept. the first time. I heard. So, the term Night Riders is basically medieval knights on motorbikes. <laughs> so, if that doesn't get you excited, then nothing should really. Um, in starring this, it's actually Ed Harris's uh, feature debut. Um, he plays the King of the Knights. Uh, 1981, it came out, if anyone's interested. Um, he plays the King of the Knights. Tom Savini's in this thing. Uh, which is always value for money. Mm. Um, it's just awesome. I mean, it, what's what's quite nice about Night Riders is I'd say unusually for a film with a concept this bizarre, everything comes together really well. You know, a lot of time with with a lot of cult movies, and I tend to watch. The, the more time you spend on this podcast, chat, you realise I watch a lot of what a lot of people would describe <laughs> as shit. Um, yeah. So I've got a big fan. I'm a big fan of the cult movies. I'm a big fan of the well, high concepts of this stuff. They need um, to be brought back, really. But what's what's nice with this is that unlike a lot of films with a great concept, uh, Romero actually delivers this really, really well. And it, the film's like two and a half hours long, and it, it was and it was like at some point this is gonna this is gonna go downhill, and it really doesn't. It's it's great and there's so much like the set pieces are fantastic they're jousting on motorbikes basically and they're like a travelling stunt act or are they because Ed Harris takes it very very seriously indeed um, and yeah it's just it's got a lot of heart about like sort of outsiders fitting into society and this and this kind of thing and it, again it it goes back to what we were saying about Romero earlier with this kind of with the, the living dead thing whereas his films become satire on society and this isn't a horror in any way which is quite interesting to note and it does show I think it shows his his versatility as a director um, the end as well packs a hell of a punch and is very very reminiscent of the end of Sons of Anarchy which is quite interesting mm. uh, the Kurt Sutter TV show so I'm going to do a bit more reading there because it's almost identical to the end of Sons of Anarchy uh, which which intrigued me because I like that show despite being aware of its flaws um, so yeah it's it's a great reminder that Romero is a more versatile director than just the zombie films that he was famous for so uh, yeah Pete what have you got? 
So Night Riders was that one. Night right? Riders, yeah. yeah. Um, first one for me this week is a film that uh, yeah I've meant to. We always say this, but I've meant to catch up with for ages. It's a 2011 Richard Linklater film, Bernie, which was one that just slipped through the net in terms of Linklater, and I've tried to sort of catch up with with most everything else that he's done. It stars Jack Black as uh, Mortician and perhaps the most sort of um, socially popular man in human history who manages to sort of ingratiate himself. I thought that was you, Pete. It, well, well, I'm second to him. <laughs> ingratiate himself into like all manner of groups. But it seems to be established early on that he's particularly popular amongst uh, aged widows um, where he's going to go like the extra mile, no, the extra like 5, 10, 15 miles to make sure that a bereaved widow is taken care of after the passing of her husband. Now, the film itself, it reminded me at a number of different points of a, a film that I think everybody should search out and, and see, which is an Errol Morris documentary, a kind of earlier Errol Morris documentary called Vernon, Florida, where I think this one um, was somewhere in the early 80s. Yeah, 81, same year as, as Night Riders, actually. Is Errol Morris the thin blue line? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And um, the, in that documentary, he basically just has like a load of talking heads from this like weird community, Vernon, Florida, talking about the stuff that goes on in their area. And some of it's like accidentally very funny. Some of it's very strange, but always quite gripping. In Bernie, you get to meet all these varied characters. It's like this giant ensemble of people from the community talking about like a like a giant greek chorus of people talking about the exploits of bernie as portrayed by by jack black okay. um as the film develops into the second half for me maybe it lost a little bit of steam a little bit just because it has to necessarily focus in on one relationship and i just enjoyed so much jack black's performance with all these different people you know interacting with all manner of people in that community um, eventually it hones in on a relationship that he forms with uh, again a, a widowed lady a kind of bitter widowed lady that everybody else has a hard time getting along with he manages to get on the right side of her is taken sort of under her wing and they end up gallivanting around the world together on her dime and it seems like a kind of match made in heaven but not everything is quite right between the two of them. Um, the lady is played by Shirley MacLaine, um, a lot of people know, and also in this, uh, a, a pretty enjoyable appearance from Matthew McConaughey around the sort of McConaughey era, I yes. guess, in, in 2011. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot to recommend it. Um, and if it's the gap in your Richard Linklater, for whatever reason, like it was in mine, don't let that continue because... Jack Black, I think. It's a gap in mine. I haven't Jack seen. Jack Black has, so, yeah. like, to my mind, never been better. Somehow, Linklater has managed to channel all that like manic energy into this pared down at times. Well, he did it when in School of Rock as well, though, didn't he? In fairness, he channeled him down in that. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, and maybe that just that collaboration works really well. Mm. And you've seen that. I mean, it's not unlike what you get from um, Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love, but like in a very, very okay. different way. It's a very different character. But yeah, strong recommendation for me. That's Bernie from. 2011 what have you got Paul I've got it's another one of those where I get to read the back of the box Pete because I that's, know you love these films that's always like and a I know really you love me snappy doing this, way you know. to <laughs> present it's, it's, good. it's good. Don't, don't stop now so this is uh, this is Pieces um, this is a Spanish uh, horror film from 1982 um, released by Arrow Video anyone who's aware of Arrow Video should know the quality of the, the cult films they're putting out as I was saying earlier uh, Jack 
some of the films I watch are, are widely regarded as a piece of shit by a lot of people. <laughs> um, I love it. So pieces. So yes, just to set the scene, this is a Juan Piquet, Piquet Simon, I think is the director's name, and I'm not going to try and say it again. Uh, I'm going to read the back briefly just to set the scene so you know just how silly we are here. Um, a Boston college campus is being terrorised by a black-clad maniac collecting body parts for his twisted human jigsaw. As the corpses and red herrings begin to pile up, can the murderer be unmasked before his ghoulish puzzle is complete? Am I right? That sounds absolutely fantastic. Yes. Um, I would put this film firmly in the so bad it's good category. Now, some people argue whether that's actually a thing or not. Um, And at least it's funny. Um, It's so silly that even people who hate this kind of film will find some fun in this. I mean, it's just it's just batshit crazy, as you can wow. see from the... Just just to give you an example of how silly this film is and how in a place is just stupid, hilariously stupid, the script is, you have an opening... The, the first murder, uh, the murderer appears on the law, college campus lawn and chainsaws a girl's head off. Uh, the prefect, the dean of the university, decides to have a conversation with the police and so they're going to keep it secret and stage it as an accident. <laughs> So, so firmly tongue-in-cheek. So firm, I, I don't know. This is the thing. I'm, it's one of these films where if it is firmly tongue-in-cheek, then this film is brilliant. And I mean brilliant. If it is meant to be a comedy, it's amazing. It, it's this straight up. Like, the Spanish language does add to the humour, whether intentionally or not. But I don't know whether it was meant to be a comedy or not. So if it was, it's genius. If it's not, it's arse, but very, very funny. Um, one for genre fans, again. I probably won't. Get, make you guys sit through it. I might because it is that funny, but we'll see. We'll see what mood you catch me in at some point. Yeah. One for genre fans like myself, but um, yes, pieces. yeah. You've just got Papa Roach into my ha- head now, so thanks a lot for that. <laughs> um, second for me this week is a film from the brothers Dardenne, uh, Jean Pierre and Luc Dardenne. Um, I reviewed, I think, two days, one night, not too long ago with Marianne Cotillard. There's some things in common. Uh, this has some things in common with that. The film is The Kid with a Bike. Um, it's a very simple narrative about a boy who has been abandoned by his father. His father sort of severs contact and clearly doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Um, that boy has really only one possession worth anything to his name, and that is his bike. He gets from A to B on it. Uh, it's kind of his, his, well, I say his prized possession. It's really his, his only possession. It's all he's really got. And the only other hope um, on the horizon for him is the support and aid offered by a local hairdresser played by Cécile de France, who you might know as, I believe the character's called Marie in Switchblade Romance, which we mentioned quite recently. Um, So, yeah, I say it had something in common with Two Days, One Night because that film's about a lady who is trying to make good on a situation that's bad. You know, she's going around, when we talked about this film, she's going around to colleagues who voted to have her removed from a company in exchange for a bonus and trying to convince them that that's the wrong thing to do. In this case, we've got the boy trying to just plead with his father that abandonment is not the right way to go and his father doesn't really want to hear that. Um, from this point on, the kid goes through various character-forming experiences with um, s- some positive role models, some negative role models, like this kind of pinball mixed up in a sort of societal pinball machine. And your attention's kept throughout because you want to know where it is that he's going to end up. Links also to things like This Is England, the way the little kid Thomas Turgu's character in This Is England is picked up by a group of kind of maybe good, maybe bad, uh, maybe honourable, maybe dishonourable young people who are actually a lot older than him. But yeah, a very, very simply told story 
told, I think, with quite a... Um, I keep meaning to watch it, to be fair. Like an artful and then, uh, style. And yeah, I mean, between... Pieces, something like Pieces jumps off the shelf at me, so I maybe <laughs> should watch that instead. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we, we've had this conversation a lot, Paul. I think it works well because, as you said, you watch a lot more um, like cult genre pieces. I hate that word. Why have I used it? I criticise you for using it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like cult genre films and stuff like that. Whereas like I try and bang the drum for stories about human relationships and like that always pulls me in mm. and yeah I, I again a very positive week for me because i strongly recommend the kid with the bike this is 2011 by the way if, if that helps right uh that brings us to the jack you get to talk now for a bit longer than just you... going yeah um, sounds good yeah, yeah no that guy was really um, good. What, what did we set you as homework jack so remind us the lad set me uh homework of strangers on a train which is from 1951 which that's older than you, Jack. Is, is older than me. And us older than Venice, the two yeah. lads sat next to me. Um, and it's one of Alfred Hitchcock's films. Um, now, when you set me this homework, you said it wasn't his best. I don't think it's his best. Person, so but... I went thinking when I watched it, oh, it's not going to be good as Psycho. Uh, so I thought, let's give this a go, because I haven't really watched that many Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, and for the listeners out there, it's the story of a psychotic socialite that confronts a pro tennis player um, on the theory of two complete strangers getting away with murder, which is quite an exciting... It's a cool premise, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is, definitely. Um, and I think my favourite part of this film was the creepiness portrayed by uh, Robert Walker, um, who was the socialite. Um, I found him insanely creepy with his eyes, just the way that they followed the screen around. Um, and I thought the plot was good in terms of the idea that two strangers meet and they have this off the ball conversation about killing each other's spouses or the father in his case Um, and yeah I thought it worked well and the conversation that they had was great until the film went on I thought the film was too long um, and I found myself sort of catching up with where the characters were looking on the screen and being like, oh, that's changed. Uh, I've been following this character for so long. Um, And my favourite scene, I think, was the carousel. Um, When they're fighting on the carousel. The carousel scene is Over lighter. um, And it ends there. Um, I think that was a really good homework to set me for someone that has watched a lot of films, but probably not some of the classics from back in the 1950s, 60s, that sort of era. Um, So I've decided to set you some homework uh, you too. Um, I will watch this film as well because it's probably one of my favourite films. Uh, this is Pan's Labyrinth. I see you've got confident now. Yeah. You've decided on your second. Yeah. You've, you've got your first speaking role now. You're setting his homework. I like Absolutely, it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're um, throwing so this, the weight of the well, producer. No, around. I, I should say, you know, behind <laughs> the curtain stuff, that Jack had this one in the in the barrel and was like, right, I'm going to take you a little film this this week. It's called a. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, lads, Pan's Labyrinth. You know, I think there was a pregnant pause there where we were going to be flummoxed by that and we kind of looked there all kind of withering, like, yeah, obviously we're aware of, of Pan's of Labyrinth. Course. But the whole deal is that this allows everyone to pitch in and do like a weekly group review of a film that deserves appreciation. Yeah, I think that's right? quite exciting because we watch films that you probably have watched several times before. Mm. Um, and so Pan's Labyrinth, for me, was probably the first time I listened to or watched uh, a foreign film with okay, cool. like a s- Spanish subtitles. Really like that. Um, and it's directed by Del Toro. I can't pronounce his G- first G- name. G- Someone G- help me out. Yeah. 
Guillermo yeah. Toro. Um, I asked him about that when I met him once. Oh, really? Okay. No, I didn't. I didn't Throwing that in the curve. Name, but I've just dropped that in. Well, you awesome. met Barry Norman, didn't you? So people yeah. might believe you met Del Toro, in fact. Yeah. So don't, don't, don't leave yeah, our happens. listeners up the garden party. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, what's coming up next on the show? Right. So, yeah, I just wanted to drop in, sorry, one thing, Jack, for you. You mentioned this Robert Walker performance really strong in Strains on a Train. Turns out, and I didn't know this before, I don't know if you did, Robert Walker, at the same year that they released Strains on a Train, sadly passed away at age 32. I did not know 1951. Oh, wow. 32 okay. years old. Young, younger than you know two of us anyway are now <laughs> i would say we are now but two of us are now <laughs> yeah but yeah um it's sad, sad sad news from 1951 for you know those who didn't keep up um yeah that brings us to the end of the popcorn movies section so coming up next our feature review of war for the planet of the apes oh And yes, our feature review for of or for War of Four. This is what I was getting confused about the other week. <laughs> War Four, The Planet of the Apes, uh, directed by Matt Reeves. This is the third part of his uh, reimagined, um, I say reimagined, or prequel Planet of the Apes trilogy. Um, Pete, do as you do best, which is set the scene of the plot for War Four, The Planet of the Apes, because it's quite difficult to say. Okay, I'll keep it brief. So. Um... Yeah, after the... I'm, I'm reading this off the IMDb, I'm going to be full <laughs> disclosure. Uh, I can't keep up with the intricacies of the plotting of Planet of the Apes, if I'm honest. Uh, after the apes suffer an unimaginable loss, Caesar res- wrestles with his darker instincts and begins his own mythic quest to avenge the, his kind. Yeah, the story is basically that Caesar is the, the power broker in the, the group of apes who ha- are... Um, fighting in a sort of ongoing war with humans who are also who have also enslaved what they call donkeys, like worker apes who are supporting their donkey kongs. I think is the uh, right. Right, I thought it was quite clever actually. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who are supporting their cause, and then Caesar suffers a great personal loss and sets about avenging the, for that loss uh, on this quest. As as I said, which then becomes a sort of group quest but Caesar's always the one spearheading this motion which is obviously going to result in a large scale conflict in the end right that's basically where we are with this this yeah, film yeah and it basically picks up from the events followed on from uh, Yawn of the Planet sorry Dawn of the Planet of the Apes yeah, I mean, you, you've pegged it, you're one of the apes, which I understand. I, I just felt about that film, it didn't have enough scope. Mm. And I think that's something here that Matt Reeves has really remedied. Would you agree with me that the just sort of sweep and scope of this film is way beyond the previous film? No. No? I, I, I don't understand why people have gone so mad for A, A, A The Dawn, which we talked about last week, so I won't touch on that. And again, people seem to have gone mad for War for the Planet of the Apes. For me, this feels almost like a retread of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I just felt there were just to call it War for the Planet of the Apes. I think is is a misnomer. I was expecting a genuine battle for the planet, so I was expecting the I was expecting to up the ante a lot more than you did. Yeah, I mean, fair point. I mean, this probably should be called War for a small localized skirmish, part. Skirmish of, for a bit of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, War for a field on the planet of the Apes. Yeah. But that's like getting a bit too complicated, yeah. even for this this yeah. series. Uh, so no, I, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll carry on if I may. I, I don't get it. I don't. I, th- I felt it's one of those times when I've, I felt like I've come out of a different film than the one that a lot of other people have watched. I, I don't think it, it's bad. I just think it's. I think what we've got here is 
was very leaden. It was quite cliched. Uh, there was kind of there were so many elements of this film that you'd seen many many times before, like the obvious comic relief character that pops up halfway through and starts explaining bits of the plot. Do, do you mean and the, then which character in particular? Are you talking about the PG PG, PG the tips monkey? monkey? Yeah, <laughs> I just that is that, sorry, but yeah, genuine character in this. Tips monkey, yeah. And then you've got Woody Harrelson as the evil Colonel of exposition. Like he literally just just exists. He doesn't say much. He does a weird weird Colonel Kurtz impression, um, and then. Basically, his main, his main bulk of dialogue explains um, some of the plot. And I just thought it was... I just think, for me, Matt Reeves is just a very safe and almost lazy filmmaker. I just thought, maybe... I'll go as far to say, and I'm, I don't mean to cause any offence here, I'll go as far to say, if the only films you watch at the cinema are The Mummy or Transformers are only blockbusters, if that's the only films you watch, fair play, I've got no problem with that at all, then you'll probably come out going, War for Planet of the Apes is amazing. That absolutely blew me away. It's got so much heart. It was so well acted. It was this and it was that. And for some of those things, that's correct. Andy Serkis is great. The CGI is spectacular. But I just thought it was average and I don't understand the appeal. I just, I don't get it. Pete, sorry, uh, rant over. I think you're being too <laughs> harsh. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting Matt Reeves has been given The Batman as his next project with, with Ben yeah. Affleck, right? So he's going to have to work on a large scale again with a load of money and a load of pressure. But I honestly felt differently because I thought that the, the previous film, although I don't maybe feel as, as, as strongly negative things as you about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, it just felt to me too local, too um, constrained, too limited in its scope. And I do think, yes, it's not worldwide war. It clearly is not that, this film, once you get some way into the plot. But the scale with which the director like stages battle scenes it's like this epic war movie at times and I think some of that stuff is actually pretty impressive there, there were sections of it where I thought you know this is going to lose me it is over it's a bit over long um, two, two hours 20 minutes I think yeah. Um, yeah. it is, a bit, it is clearly a bit over long yeah. and there's a section sort of in the middle it sags a little bit but then when it comes together in this final conflict I did find myself just marvelling at some, some of the stuff visually and so I've clearly had a different experience don't get wrong the effects like the effects and especially the, the ape effects and the CGI is unbelievable and the, yeah. like, the technical wizardry that goes into this is unbelievable but and that's spectacle like, though is, isn't it I mean yeah. you know there, there are spectacle films that that don't work right there are spectacle films where you see all this money on screen and it doesn't work this didn't necessarily blow me away but sections of it certainly did and ways that that action was handled at certain points certainly did and yeah like mentioning the CGI I mean the use of explosions towards the end of this thing is incredible which sounds like a completely un-me kind of thing to say like oh the explosions yeah. in an action film just like got me really excited but the, yeah they did I mean you're right the, the PG Tips monkey was sort of like passably funny and a little bit irritating at, at times um, some of it weirdly to me I say the PG Tips monkey I love that I wish I thought of that before <laughs> some really... of it I say like it felt this epic war movie I suppose there were times where I just thought I get that this is allegorical couldn't this just be a film with people like, do we really need to just have, like, monkeys as conduits for people? Because there's a lot going on, and it's it's one of those films that sort of, like, presses so many thematic buttons that you feel like maybe it's a monkey pressing the buttons. But, yeah, like, maybe it's, it's not as focused on any particular issue as much no. as it is sort of overwhelmed by its own sense of And it's certainly not focused right? on urgent escapes, is it? Because it right. takes them so long... 
yeah, to I mean, attempt to even escape. I had a very clever yes. bit in my head that I've completely forgotten. But like, th- this <laughs> film seems to go through all these sections where you've got like the great, the great ape escape or whatever is yeah. one part, and then it's like uh, ap- apocalypse now or whatever. Yeah. Like you see, which I'm the- sure is actually said in graffiti, isn't it, in the film somewhere? I think or apocalypse now or something like that. I think. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely that, a reference yeah. in there. Yeah, and and I mean. The, the nods to other classic films are so apparent and sort of stitched together but then it felt to me like this sort of roller coaster. like I jumped in on a lot of those I was like oh I see what we're doing now but I'm I'm having a good time I'm enjoying it and I just think, like I, I'm just going to go back to that point I just think the action is staged really well and I think that's quite rare in big budget cinema uh, but yeah I'd agree it was, it was, I thought it was staged well enough and I, I'm not going to you know I ranted a little bit I don't hate it I want to make it clear I did not hate it I just thought it was Mediocre. I, ju- I don't understand what the fuss is about. I just think there's like with all yeah. the with all the soldiers dropping in in the rain when that stuff's like half lit. The sequence where Caesar experiences this personal loss, which I'm not going to spoil, like that. You know, drop soldiers dropping down lines, and then the way that they're discovered. And I, I don't know. It's I just like we, it's like we flip rolls. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just thought a lot of it was well handled. I don't know. Maybe I came in with low expectations. I didn't think I'd enjoy yeah, I, it. No, don't get me wrong. You know, each to their own. I'm not saying. I'm not certainly not saying that people shouldn't enjoy it by any stretch. It's just I didn't. I didn't as much as I as much as other people do. And I oh. find the series, with the exception of the first one, which I really like. I find both the Matt Reeves ones very overrated. I mean, funnily enough, Paul, it, as much as I sound like I'm being super positive about this, which I mostly am, I will never watch this film again. Well, I'm not going to watch this film at home. I'm not going to watch it outside of cinema. It worked on a big screen. It, yeah, like, we're slightly in disagreement on this, but, like, mm. I do think it is a spectacular sort of summer blockbuster if you can get on board with, yeah, just putting monkeys in as conduits for humans constantly, yeah. almost to a fault, <laughs> yes. um, then you'll have a good time with it. And, you know, and, and you'll sort of marvel at some of the stuff they managed to achieve. But, like I say, it can't get right up there in the sort of top 10 of this year or whatever, because I knew as I was watching it, this is the one and only time I will watch no, this No, I think, yeah, at least uh, what I will say in, in its defence is that at least it, it kind of, uh, it pays re- respect to uh, the earlier Planet of the Apes film, so it doesn't, it doesn't shit all over their heritage, and it does. It, this the end of this one does kind of lead. Well, it would probably pick up yeah. and throw shit at their heritage. If it it's would a do, monkey yeah. film. Yeah, yeah, but but at least you know, at least it honours their heritage, and it doesn't it doesn't rewrite the series, which is good. So yes. So yeah, that brings us to the end of our review of Wolf the Planet of the Apes. Coming up next, our review of Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled. So yes, this is the review of The Beguiled uh, by Sophia Coppola, not the earlier Don Siegel version, which I also watched this week, which I'll bring up in a bit. Um, I'm going to try and set the scene on this one, Pete. I'm going to give you a break from trying to set the scene, and you'll probably take it off me and do it again. I'll just, this, I'll just wait till the end and then criticise it. You know, that's yeah. how, I, how <laughs> yeah. I live my life. Um, so yes, The Beguiled, basically we have uh, Colin Farrell as um, kind of starts the film as an injured um, Civil War soldier in the US Civil War. I think he's fighting on the side of the North. Um, has been injured in, certainly in, in the south in the southern states um, and is discovered by a young girl who takes him into the girls school uh, that she's been um, studying at basically um, and the sort of matriarchal character played by Nicole Kidman here uh, decides to take him in and treat his injuries rather than handing him over um, to the opposing soldiers and that kind of sets the scene I think really it's kind of a, a very quick quick punchy setup, and it's quite a short film in fact so I'll let you open Pete with with what you thought yeah, so I suppose it's a good place to start is um, not unlike what we were talking about last week with It Comes at Night. 
someone from the outside let into a hermetically sealed environment and then wreaking some form of havoc or instability within that setting, right? In that case, we had a family allowed to come and cohabit with uh, Joel Edgerton's family. And in this film, we have Colin Farrell, as as Paul has explained, being allowed to seek kind of refuge as this recovering wounded soldier, initially just for the sake of you know, um, tending to his wounds and then setting him out on his way. But it later and gradually becomes apparent that the women here, led by Nicole Kidman, as was mentioned, might want to keep him around for longer for various reasons, many of them sexual. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, get, I guess we'll get straight into this one. I've said a lot of not particularly enthusiastic things about Sofia Coppola's filmmaking. Um including the fact that I think 2013's The Bling Ring, which was her last feature film, that, is, it, it has almost no redeeming features, apart from one pull-away shot that she did on a, on a house invasion. Apart from that, I just found so little to like in the source material. I found it so sort of repellent and pointless. And I mean, I suppose that was the point in this case, mm. maybe. And she was very enamoured with the idea of putting kind of pop culture on screen. Here... It's a complete 180 because we're in this kind of world of constraint. Even the aspect ratio of this film is non-standard and I think works perfectly to show, you know, to sort of contain even more than all of the social mores and rules and etiquette that that tie up these girls in their, you know... um, petticoats and, and dresses and the things that they have to wear in the strictly sort of disciplined house. I liked this film. I liked it quite a lot. I think that it's her most controlled piece of work I think it's her most considered piece of work and I think it's her most um, sort of unifyingly um, I'm not sure the the word that I'm looking for here like I think between the sound design um, cohesive is that yeah yeah it's a good word for it Paul yeah it's cohesive I think the sound design I think the imagery I think the performances coalesce to produce something that I found quietly and it has to be stressed quietly effective where are you are we in completely different places we're pretty much in the same place to be honest um what's interesting for me is that i sat down in front of the uh, i think this is adapted from a book so um i sat down in front of the 1971 um don siegel directed effort which has got clint eastwood in the colin farrell role yeah i mean couldn't um, be a more different director to sophia Coppola, no and right? this, is, of and this macho, is what's intriguing macho, and macho, just, right? yeah and this is what's intriguing about the original is it is macho 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 the, the films are they, they are very similar in story they're similar in in length although the original is a little bit longer what's interesting about the original is obviously directed from a male perspective at the time when Hollywood was incredibly male dominated um, and Clint Eastwood is kind of is just turning on the charm and it's it, okay it's Clint Eastwood we get that he's good looking but it's just ridiculous like he's almost like winking at camera it's almost like at times he's doing a Sid James like it's, it's that kind of unsubtle performance where he's obviously flirting with the women mm. um, and to a certain extent they're reciprocating and what I will say about the original film is I'd say it probably has a slightly better sense of unease about it than Sophia Coppola's version. But apart from that, this is by far, the Coppola version is by far the superior film. Um, Colin Farrell plays down the charm, I think, and I think he's developing into a really, really good actor. Oh, he's a great and I think he's Yeah, and I think this, really The Lobster, and kind of a lot of his more recent work is, is different roles in Bruges, those kind of films. Um, he's great, and he's, he plays down the charm that's there in the Eastwood version, and it's a lot subtler. Like, you get that it's kind of two-way flirting in this. And I think the, the fact that this has been told from a female perspective really, really helps it. And I think Sophia Coppola's um, visuals in this, I think, 
I would say probably is I'd say it's her strongest film, even stronger than Virgin Suicides. I would say um, it's got a very ethereal, dreamlike feeling about it that I really, really liked. You kind of almost felt woozy as you came out of it. It was kind of mm. it kind of caught you off balance a bit, which is great for a film to do that. And it's just and it's so well. I thought it was so well paced and just a very tight, very entertaining ninety minutes. I really, really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about some performances because you've mentioned Colin Farrell. We've mentioned Nicole Kidman, who I think is doing some of her best work at the moment. I mean, we talked about her role in Lion as the, the adoptive mother in that film. She's also been, I know I've tried to get you onto this, but I think it's the antithesis of everything that you are, which is uh, <laughs> big, big Little Lies, the HBO series where she was in... Uh, um, hmm, here's my connection. She had a, an abusive relationship with... Uh, Skarsgård, Alexander Skarsgård yeah. in that film and I think there's connections in the performances where the turn occurs in this film okay. with, with the Colin Farrell character and I won't say anything more than that. Yeah. I think she's a master of like those little furtive glances mm. looks to another character particular like twi- twitches or like almost um, undefinable little things that she does with her expression that tell you so much about the inner working of that character. The performance of Kirsten Dunst, in, I think, in this as well is is excellent. Yeah. She's worked with Sophia Coppola obviously before, and I think that they seem it seems to be that they just they're in lockstep with each other, a bit like maybe Jack Black and Richard Linklater in a completely different way, as we mentioned earlier on. Um, she, of course, is the character who tells Colin Farrell what I want more than anything is just to get as far away from here as I can. Yes. And you have this sense throughout, you said woozy and I agree, like you have this sense of these people who, as much as they're going to go through the motions of all the things that are required of them as, you know, uh, buttoned up literally and figuratively members of this schoolhouse, just want to escape. Not unlike Virgin Suicides, which you talked about recently, not unlike Mustang, which took a lot of influence from that film as well. But yeah, like I said at the beginning, Elle Fanning, of course, in this as well, and I think in a lot more of an interesting role than Neon Demon, in just my personal opinion, yeah. I think. But she plays on that kind of um, innocent, yet yeah, not so innocent, yeah. yeah, naivety, yet not so naive kind of persona that she's developing. So yeah, I think the ensemble's really strong. I think the atmosphere is really strong. I mean, it there's a lightness of touch that can be sort of both a blessing and a curse, I think, at times. Um maybe where you want things to be ratcheted slightly further. You said um, about the, the Don Siegel film. Yeah, the, the one thing I will say, in, I said it, it, it does, I think is probably has a better atmosphere to it. So you're kind of, you're put on, a, you're put off off kilter from the moment the film starts. It just sets something up. And I say it probably a little bit better than, than the Coppola version. I, I wouldn't say it's a, I wouldn't say it's that it harms the Coppola version particularly, but I would say that's probably the only noticeable difference. So, Yeah, but I mean, all in all, really, really strong. I mean, this has been well-reviewed. I think it met a score of something around 85, 87, something like that. I think for good reason. I think it's one of those films that... Um, Sophia Coppola actually herself has said that when she makes films, she thinks about her box set, even though that's not a thing that sort of currently yeah. exists for her, but how this film is going to sit as of a piece with the other stuff that she's made and like what her style is and what her themes are that she's focused on and I think for anyone who is interested in the trajectory of of her career and and, you know where she's decided to devote her time in terms of filmmaking because it is very focused 
I, I don't think you can go go far wrong with with no, the guard. No, highly I mean. recommended. I think, and um, yeah, I we would say were probably... quite the guard. And sorry, I want to mention one more thing, Paul, and then I will shut my mouth. Um, this title itself has an ambiguity that I think works really well because it's both. It's sort of two dimensional. Uh, yes, two directional. Sorry, yes. I should say it comes it's... from both the male and female perspective. Yeah, male who and is, female. Who is it? Who's it? beguiled yeah. here? It, yeah, it bounces back and forth as the sort of narrative develops. So yeah, loads to like about it. It's one of those films that just has a look and has a feel. A bit like the witch, which Angry Rice is in both yes. of those things. Uh, yeah, just all of its own, and and it works within its own. Yeah, buttoned up construction. Yeah, no, I really I enjoyed think. it, and I would say it's. Um, so I would say it's certainly my film of the week that we've uh, we've probably reviewed thus far. Um, which brings us pretty much or to the end of the show, in fact, doesn't it? Um, we've set home. So next week we'll be back with uh, Jack Set's homework of Pan's Labyrinth. So we'll have a chat about that. Uh, we'll be doing feature reviews of The Graduate, which has got a 50th anniversary re-release tomorrow, which I'm very excited about because I don't think, unless I'm mistaken, Pete, have you seen it? You know what? I haven't. No. So neither no. of us have seen that, which is shameful, really. Yeah. Doing a film podcast. Really Jack is. has. Jack. So, I've seen yeah, it. Jack's, yeah. Jack's seen that. Uh, and then we'll be also back with a feature review of Christopher Nolan's latest effort, uh, Dunkirk, which I'm very excited about. Um, and that about wraps it up so you can find it where can you find us Pete? Yeah I would uh, put first and foremost at Stranger Cinema which is the Twitter handle get involved with us there uh, the Instagram account is Stranger in a Cinema obviously and elsewhere including Facebook um, you can go back and listen to old episodes it's something that a lot of listeners seem to do all of them are archived on the SoundCloud page which is soundcloud.com forward slash Strangers in a Cinema um, and yeah any comments feedback would be welcomed and we will respond so get in touch But until next time, I would guess that that's goodbye from me, Pete. And goodbye from me, Paul. Goodbye from me, Jack. Shut up and sit down.